Our scripture lesson today is from the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them with uh, Elijah, with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let's make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about they had seen, until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks for these words, your words, ancient words that speak to us down through time, that speak to our lives today, that challenge us. Open our ears, our eyes, our minds, our hearts to hear those words anew today so that we might go forth from this place and be your faithful disciples. For we pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. So I have a confession to make on this high holy day. I don't like football. <laughs> Some fellow non-football lovers over in the choir. So I did not grow up, obviously, watching American football, as we call it in the UK. I didn't actually grow up watching any kind of football, but when I came to the US, of course, it was not long before I felt like I had to at least begin to understand the game. We, Ian and I, when we moved to North Carolina, one of the church members invited us to go with them to see UNC play. Um, so it was college football. I understand that's a little different from NFL. But we went to that game, and I remember nothing about the stadium. I remember nothing about the game. I remember nothing about any of the play. What I remember was the timeouts and the commercial breaks. <laughs> Somebody's groaning over here. The game went on and on <laughs> and on and on. I never thought it was gonna end. And since that day, I think I have managed to avoid watching football ever since. But I was thinking this week about, yes, football, but also I was thinking about those timeouts. Those timeouts, and whether it's a sports game of any, whatever kind, those timeouts that prove important, right? Those timeouts are strategic. They're used at specific points in the game for either your team to regain, regroup, find their focus again, or you use them strategically to throw the other guys off, right? Am I understanding really what timeouts are about? That's the purpose, that's why they're used. Now, commercial breaks are a whole nother thing. They're just there to frustrate you, I think. But, but in Mark's Gospel, when we get to this point in Mark's Gospel in the Transfiguration, it seems to me that we are in a point where Mark gives us 
a little time out. If you've been paying attention as, you have, as we have been reading through Mark's Gospel over these last few weeks, it is written at a super fast pace. We are hurrying along at an exhausting pace. Everything in Mark's Gospel happens immediately. It's a word that Mark uses over and over again. We go from one story to another to another in very quick succession. But here, here in our story this morning, Mark gives us what amounts to a narrative pause. He tells us that this happens not immediately, but six days later. We have a six-day pause between this story and the one before it. It's not immediately, it's not on the next Sabbath, it's almost a week later. It is the equivalent of a time out. And I think it's Mark's way of telling us that what is about to happen, we need to slow down. We need to pause to think about it, to take note of it. Jesus, we're told, takes some of his disciples up a high mountain. And that's, again, one of the ways that Mark points out to us that something important is about to happen. If you look at some of the Old Testament passages relating to traveling up mountains, you will find that that is often where people came or went to have an encounter with the living God. Think about Abraham. Abraham took up the mountain, his sacrifice, Isaac. They went up a mountain and it was there that God spoke directly to Abraham. Moses heard the voice of God through a fiery bush on the slope of a mountain. The law was given to Moses when when he went up a mountain. God poured down fire onto Elijah's sacrifice upon a mountain. And even Jerusalem, the holy city, sat upon a hill. People spoke about going up to Jerusalem, and it was there there in the temple that they hoped to encounter God. And of course, it was on a hill of Calvary that God dealt once and for all with sin. So in the Bible, when you read that people are going up a mountain, you know that something significant is about to happen. And right away in our story, something does happen. First of all, we're told that Jesus' clothes turned from their regular drab gray to a dazzling white, brighter than anyone could dye them. Here, Jesus' robes are not just white, but they are dazzling. The image is that of looking directly into the sun, and in line with everything that Mark has already set up for us, we are told, we are reminded that here in this place, the disciples are brought into the presence of God, the glory of God revealed in Jesus. That dazzling white brings to mind pictures of purity and holiness, perfection. It brings to mind the words from the Old Testament where we're told that no one can behold the face of God and lived and live. The disciples are dazzled by this glory. They have to avert their gaze, but they're not destroyed. They see the glory of God, but they live to tell the tale. And they are witnesses. Witnesses to this gathering of Jesus and Moses and Elijah. 
they discover these two other people, they are talking and they somehow have an awareness, awareness that these figures are Moses and Elijah brings into their presence, not just a glorified Jesus, but these figures of the Old Testament, one who stands Moses for the law and Elijah for the prophets. Both of these prophet, these men have stood up to wicked tyrants, Moses to the king of Egypt, Elijah to Ahab. All three of them have spent periods in the wilderness. And there on that mountain, Moses and Elijah appear before Christ. If you've seen any great works of art that portray the transfiguration, often Christ will be right in the center with Moses and Elijah on either side. And Peter. Peter in that moment, we are told, doesn't know what to do. And we see in Peter that impulsive nature, that, that, that person who acts sometimes before he thinks. And there on that mountain when Jesus is dazzling and Moses and Elijah appear, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to make sense of what has been going on. And so he asks right in that moment, he says, let's build a tent. Let's build a structure. Let's do something to stay here in this moment. He wants to pause the action. He wants to freeze the story. He wants to take a little time out. He knows that something important is happening. He's just not quite sure what that might be. Now, in the Jewish tradition, in the fall, there was a celebration called Sukkot. And that was in the fall, and you built a sukkah, a temporary shelter. And it was to remember and celebrate the time that the Israelites traveled through the desert, dwelling in tents. It was to bring to mind the fact that God dwelled with the people. He traveled with them. But it was also sometimes a, a way when you were part of that agricultural process in the harvest season, workers would also sometimes build these sukkahs at the side of their fields. You were engaged in work in urgent and important work. You didn't have time to go home every day to take a break. So you would build this shelter to rest, to get out of the sun. And as part of the Sukkot tradition, there is what is called Ujpasin. I don't know if I'm really pronouncing that properly, but it was a tradition where into these shelters, you welcomed the ancestors. You welcomed the ancestors of your faith. You welcomed your own personal ancestors, those who had journeyed before you. So when Jesus goes up, up that mountain and when Peter is overcome and doesn't know what to do, he falls back to that tradition. He imagines that Jesus is there with the ancestors of the faith and he wants to build them a sukkah to be in that tradition, that tradition that is bigger than him. And just as he is in the process of saying that and thinking that through, we are told that a cloud comes down, a cloud comes down and covers them over, and a voice says from that cloud, this is my son, listen to him. 
It is, of course, an echo of the words spoken to Jesus at his baptism. But there, the words were private words, words spoken only to Jesus. Here, they're public words. They're words that the disciples can hear also. And when the cloud lifts, Moses is gone, Elijah is gone, and Jesus is the only one there. Listen to him. Those are the words that ring in Peter's ears. Notice that Jesus doesn't even respond to Peter's suggestion of building a Sukkot. He doesn't even acknowledge it. He just moves right along, and there's this shift in the narrative, a reminder that what comes next is very different. Jesus tells the disciples they have to go down the mountain. They have to journey back down to the world. And it's clear here. It's clear in Mark's gospel that now we are moving in a new direction. Jesus' eyes are now fixed on his future. He's turning himself to Jerusalem, and he calls those disciples down off that mountain to journey with him. As they go down that mountain, of course, they're still confused. They still don't really know what any of it means. What was that whole thing with Elijah and Moses, and why did he turn whiter than snow? But maybe those words, listen to my son, are the words that they carry with them. Because sometimes the experience of following Jesus, both in the time of the disciples and in our time, is really just about putting one foot in front of the other. The only way we can find God's will for us in this world is to listen to Christ, but also to keep moving in the same direction we feel God is calling us. It's only through taking that next step that we might ever find out what God has in store for us. Walter Brueggemann has a wonderful phrase, and he often in his writings says something along the lines of the God of the Bible is a God in the free, not a God who floats above the things of this world, but a God who is down among the things. Jesus, as a Messiah, is among the humans and dealing with all that humans deal with, the life and the death, the things that we struggle with in this world. Jesus was about to turn his face to Jerusalem to take on the power structures of the day, and he was clearly telling the disciples that they couldn't linger on the mountain in safety. This text, this text calls us back down to come back to the world where we live in the messiness of our everyday lives, among the struggles of our world, the struggles of our neighbors. This text reminds us that this is where God lives. Jesus sends them back down to the valley where most of life is lived. Many of us have our mountaintop moments, our time outs, our time away perhaps to regroup to recharge, are times when we perhaps feel and see God's presence more clearly in our lives. And sometimes it can be tempting to try to stop the clock, to freeze that moment forever like Peter does. And yet, we know that that's not what we're called to do. 
Today on Transfiguration Sunday, we are invited to think about both the mysterious and the strange events that took place on that mountain. But also we are told and reminded that God sends those disciples down the mountain. He sends them down the mountain to follow Christ. Jesus goes down the mountain with the disciples and begins the journey to Jerusalem, the journey that will ultimately lead him to the cross. And so we too must come down the mountain. We must try to find God in the daily trials and struggles of our lives. We must find God in the not-so-perfect moments, in the unremarkable days, in the daily routine of our normal lives. Because that is where real life of faith is lived. That is where we have to seek and find God. We must enter into the difficult task of the challenges of our world, of finding the ways that God is calling us to step out in faith, to overcome the things of this world in order to be the disciples God calls us to be. So my challenge to you today as you watch that football game, during the timeouts, during the commercial breaks, if you can peel yourself away for just a few moments, ask yourself, where is God calling you to journey? Where is God calling you to show your faith? Where is God calling you to stand among those who are the poor or the outcast or the needy? Where is God calling you to journey down off the mountain and into the valley to share your faith with the ones God calls you to live among? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>